Hi there, I'm David Nesbitt, Content Marketing Manager at Incognia. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Trust and Safety Mavericks podcast. In this episode, we're talking about user verification, specifically how to balance doing robust user verification while still providing our smooth onboarding experience. This episode features Zul Jakob, Incognia's Senior Vice President of Customer Success, Travis Dawson, Senior Director of Product Management at StockX, and Chelsea Howard, Director of Trust and Safety at Sitter City. This episode was originally a webinar hosted by our friends at Marketplace Risk. In the show, they discuss topics like how to progressively verify users across the user journey, incentivizing users to complete verification steps, how to enforce account bans, and what's coming in the future for user verification. I thought this was a great discussion and I hope you enjoy it. We'll jump in right where the speakers are introducing themselves. Before I hand it over to our guests, I want to do a quick introduction. My name is Zul Yakub. I'm the SPP of uh, customer success at Incognia. Uh, in the over the last decade, I've worked at uh, various SaaS companies providing fraud and authentication solution to help FIs, e-com marketplace businesses handle their digital journey and also improve their fraud detection. I'll start with Travis. Travis, would you like to do an introduction first? Sure. Uh, Travis Dawson, uh, Senior Director of Product Management for StockX. Been doing marketplace risk for about a decade and change, including stints at uh, StubHub, uh, doing the, the risk and fraud there. Did a bit of time at SoFi for FinTech, and now I'm at StockX, uh, responsible for all the product uh, for compliance and risk. Awesome. We'll obviously hear more about what kind of products you're using and how you're using it. But moving over to Chelsea. Uh, Chelsea? Chelsea Howard, uh, Director of Trust and Safety over at Sitter City. I've been working in the trust and safety space for about seven years now. I discovered it at Sitter City, uh, led the charge um, to kind of move it to its own space at Sitter City, and I oversee the entire trust and safety program. So anything that has to do with trust and safety on Sitter City, I'm there. Excellent. Excited to hear more from you as well. So we're looking at two different platforms, right? Uh, different purposes. But I think what would, be, what would be interesting is to actually see what similarities exist and what kind of similar problems you're facing and how you're solving it. But also at the same time, uh, here are the different challenges that is unique to your business as well. So for today's agenda, we're going to be covering this five section. The first four are the topics that we are going to cover and the fifth one being the Q&A. So we'll start with goals of user verification on your platform, then move on to number two, which is what are the different verification steps that you present to your customers and what timing, uh, the timing is key, right? Because are you building up trust progressively over time and how do customers react to it? Then the third one is keeping the banned users out, right? The malicious actors out. Uh, once you identify them, uh, I'm sure they are always trying to return. How do you keep them out of the platform? And then finally, I, I would love to hear the fourth uh, topic, which is uh, the future of user verification. Like, how do we see the space evolve? What are you guys excited about? What do you think you're missing that you would like to see? And then we'll end with the section five, which is the Q&A. So with that, I'll, the first topic, goals of user verification. So my question is on that, what role does user verification play at StockX and Citricity? And specifically, what's the purpose? What are you guarding against? What are the risks if you don't do proper user verification? I'll start with uh, Chelsea. Yeah, so the way that we process user verification, you know, to me, it's we're trying to keep real people on the platform, prevent re-registrations if a user is removed and tries to come back. I know we're going to talk about that later too, but, you know, that's part of it. And then... <laughs> You know, understanding that we know who this person is so that if at any point in time in their user journey, we have to investigate more in depth their actions or things that are going on, we have a good, you know, understanding of who they really are. And then also just making sure that we're preventing fraudsters or scammers um, from registering on the site. It doesn't always prevent, um, but it does put in that a little bit of that friction um, and that kind of that kind of helps, um, you know, alleviate that issue that could potentially come up that we do see from time to time. As far as, you know, risks, if you don't 
to proper verification, you have the possible loss of trust among your users and a potential increase in that fraudulent or even some nefarious activity. So, you know, there's the different types. There's fraudsters who are, you know, trying to, you know, get at the, the customer base and take advantage of them. And then there's the more nefarious activity you know, from like on a childcare platform, you can imagine the things that um, people would try to join the platform for. So we're trying to put in certain points of friction to prevent these things from happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's a challenging work, right? Because a lot of the actions are happening off the platform, right? And for you, you guys have to have a way to pull back and, and look into the user. But that's really interesting. And uh, moving to Travis, same question. Yeah, um, I have kind of two paths here. One is uh, by law, I'm required to do certain things to to pay people out. I have to do a level of KYC. So in order just to get give my sellers money, I need I need to do something there. And additionally, when uh, additionally the governments, uh, IRS in the U.S., uh, EU Commission for of course the EU, and in the EU it's called DAC Seven. There's regulations around additional verification that needs to be done for users that sell more, anywhere from 600 USD to 2,000 to 5,000 uh, euros. So there's a just a baseline of I have to do this or I can't pay you out. And then on top of that, it's it's going to echo a lot of what Chelsea said, which is I have users that I removed from the platform that I don't want back. I have users that are not real people that I don't want them on the platform. And I have users that, for all intents and purposes, follow the pattern of malicious users or users that will try to pass fakes or inauthentic product. And I don't want them on my platform. So those are the two paths. One is what I'm required to do, which is the baseline. And then everything after that is what I do to try to ensure that my marketplace is healthy and secure. Awesome. It's interesting. Uh, by the way, I just wanted to say that I hope like users who are here will get some inspiration from the, this conversation because the 2024 planning is probably already in full flow, if not almost nearing the end. So hopefully if you have some ideas, <laughs> this will, uh, Travis and, and uh, Chelsea will help you validate or get some inspiration. Now, what's interesting is that you guys, when we chatted in the past, we touched on this, but without explicitly saying it, you have to almost pick a side, right? Like meaning you have demand side, you have supply side, right? Now, on the supply side, right? Like if focusing on, on the trust bit that you just mentioned, right? The user verification does lead to that much healthier marketplace, right? Initially it's tough, right? You're trying to have a robust supply, but removing that seems like it's a, it's against the business. But then as the health of the platform increases, you're automatically, you're, you're hoping for organic growth on the uh, demand side as well. Well, so the next uh, part is the user buy-in and timing. And um, I'll start with uh, Travis on this one, but because when we spoke offline, we were talking about how, you know, as you go through the verification process, sometimes putting up friction upfront is obviously, you know, a deterrent that leads to abandonment, but there might be another way to also do this, which is progressively building up trust, right? So I'll, Travis, I want to hear your thoughts and then I'll come to Chelsea on that. As I said, a lot of our verification is done because we have to. And we've done a lot of work on that part. And it, it comes down to, unless you give us this information and you pass, you don't get money. And you would think that would be enough. It's not, which is weird because, and I know we'll get this later, but they'll just create new accounts um, or they'll try to create new accounts. Uh, and as a result, it, it kind of subverts the whole thing. And you you end up in this cat and mouse game that is so, so much fun. So instead, we've we've started shifting more toward the carrot, which is instead of, you know, give us this or else, we are moving more toward, hey, uh, you know, you're becoming a good partner. 
you're making money on our platform, you know, if you give us a little bit more information, one, we get this regulations out of the way, but also we'll give you more perks. You know, mm-hmm. you, you give us uh, this information, we'll give you what we call early seller payout, which we pay you mm-hmm. up to two or three days early. We'll give you uh, a discount. We'll, we'll make it where uh, we'll take a percentage off of the sell fee, you know, and um, strangely, it works sometimes much better than the, you know, putting a gun to their head and saying, we're not going to pay you. They they seem to play along a little bit better. I'm not saying perfectly because I'm not that silly, but they doing the mix of a carrot and a stick seems to be a lot more effective than just the do this or else just the stick. Interesting. It's almost like you're gamifying the whole verification process. Yeah. And that's an interesting topic that came up. And I will admit, I giggled. I laughed at it. Um, but the more, I, more I'm seeing the success we're having with like gamification, the more I'm interested in somehow gamifying it even more. Interesting. So that's... this is one of those things where I, I believe I was wrong. Uh, don't wait. This is recorded. Dark. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, um, you know what? Like, it's always um, good to be humbled with interesting ideas, right? So I think this is um, this is one of those things, especially then if you can ride that horse back on and say like, all right, I'll lead the charge on this because now I'm a believer. So I, what I'm hearing from you is that maybe in the coming months or years, uh, we'll hear more interesting ways you are actually possibly gamifying to make things uh, a little bit easier. Well, are you working on it? Awesome. That's that's great. That's going to be a great topic. Well, for Chelsea, I think, Chelsea, if you, you have different challenges, right? Because you're looking at a situation where building maybe trust over time is not perhaps an option. So do you want to talk about like what your challenges are on that? Yeah, for us with the identity process, the identity verification process, obviously, the parents on the platform love that we do this with the sitters. Uh, and currently, you know, that's that's our situation. That's our status. And that's how we operate. I'll come back to that in a minute. But, you know, on the sitter side of things, when they're onboarding, at times they can be concerned because you're asking these identifying pieces of information right at the start of registration. And anytime you're asking somebody for PII, personal identifying information right up front, you know, little red flags go up with our users at times. I think people have become more savvy around providing that type of information online to people that they don't know. So our users, you know, will say, are you even a real site? Are you just trying to get access to my information? Like they haven't even broken into the whole process of looking for a job or how it works. And, you know, they also want to understand who is processing this information. Can this vendor be trusted with their information that they're inputting? So, you know, kind of like ways that we have found that are good to combat that are communication to our users and education, presenting information to your users about the vendors that we partner with um, so they can kind of decide for themselves if they're comfortable. They can do their own research. If someone reaches out and says, you know, what is this? Or I have a question about this, which we make easy. We make it easy for them to do this. You know, we'll put them directly in touch with our vendors so that they can ask those questions regarding their information and security. And you think, you know, that can help put their mind at ease and understand like, hey, I'm looking to try to provide care for someone's child. And so I kind of understand now why mm-hmm. I'm having to go through and jump through these hoops. Sometimes too, you know, when I said I would come back to this, when we're looking at the demand side of the market, we're looking into also processing verification on that side because it is important to protect all of your users. Sitters are the ones that are watching kids, but they're also going into strangers' homes. So understanding like statistics and data around timing of implementing this type of verification, should it be right at onboarding or is there another space that it makes sense? Maybe perhaps when they start communicating with one another or posting a job, you know, and then understanding like things like drop-off rates around that time so that you're not inadvertently comparing this to existing data, like they were already dropping off at this point. And so you're seeing consistency, but just making sure that, you know, you're looking at it from a broad perspective. So yeah, that's kind of 
I guess, a long-winded answer about like kind of why and how we motivate our users around why we do things like this. No, that's actually, uh, I thought that was all very relevant. And it's interesting, right? Because when I went on your website and I was looking at signing up as a nanny versus um, as a parent, right? And immediately it became apparent that the first step, there's a little bit more requirement on the nanny side and a user side. And that was my intuition too, that uh, it's interesting, right? Because you want your users to come into your platform to at least look around. And, and then the step up, like where you need additional verification, it's like where the engagement happens. But I think like sometimes if you have it upfront, the challenge becomes like, oh, I don't even know if I want to go through this just to see if the platform's the right fit for me, right? But the education seems that's a really interesting approach. And I think like for a nanny, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing that knowing what level of scrutiny they're going through, that's probably reassuring that they're probably, you're doing it on the demand side as well. Yeah. And sometimes it's you know good to see some of the drop off that you see because you're putting this friction into place and it's not you know necessarily bad to have some level of drop off because those are potentially those nefarious users that you don't want on your platform anyway. So that's always something to keep in mind too, as you work through implementing things like this. Excellent. Well, then we have a question from Christina Medeiros. Chelsea, how do you feel about the users, sitters you have lost whom don't have access to materials needed to become verified on your site? We do a lot of flexing where we we really try to work with people who are having trouble with the verification process you know something that we also implement during registration is if you're getting an error or if you're not understanding how to do it or you know we understand not everybody knows technology like we do yeah. putting those pieces of helpful information for your users is great because you know we have a button you can reach directly out to our customer success team immediately and say i need help with this and they will respond you know within a very short time frame and either be like hey, we'll schedule a call to give you a call and work through this, or you can call us or we'll send emails back and forth. We we try to be very accessible to help prevent things like that. Because obviously, you know, you don't want to lose those legitimate users who are just yeah. having trouble utilizing the process. Right. That's an interesting question because it's that friction comes from less uh, from willingness to share or, but it's more of a technical barrier, right? And so... No, that's, um, yeah, I'm, I'm actually pleasantly surprised that you have a customer success team to help with that. That's my field. Um, I I'm actually would love to hear more about it offline, uh, how that model works. Uh, we have a question from Justin Swartz. Many users have grown not to trust big platforms with verifications and holding their trust equity in a siloed platform, namely with data breaches, et cetera. Have you thought about how you can build counterparty trust between the two people interacting in a marketplace, like peer-to-peer -peer trust, rather than just relying on the user to trust the platform's trust model, like B2C trust. So I'll, I'll ask that question, Chelsea, to you, and then I'll, I'll move to Travis before moving to the next section. Yeah, I mean, we, we really try to build a sense of community on the platform. We actually have created this entire separate Facebook community group for the care providers that they can join and talk to one another. And so... It's very important. Um, you know, word of mouth is huge. And that's something that I've learned in my experience, especially among care providers. But I think really anywhere, um, you know, anything I get recommended to myself, we've got all these influencers online, like word of mouth is huge, especially now with the platforms that we have. So, you know, making sure that you are grasping and taking advantage of that, specifically related to your platform, such as, for example, us with our Facebook community group. I think really helps those users to build trust among that that community, which builds trust among, you know, your space. And then also having a representative directly from your space within that community to answer any questions that that, you know, those folks might have is also extra helpful too. That's really interesting. So Travis, any any thoughts on the on the question from Justin? Um it's actually Interesting, because uh, StockX was breached four years ago, uh, literally uh, a, a month or so before I started. And uh, as a result, we removed all PII from our databases. Mm. We purged everything that we had. So we don't really maintain any PII. 
we have a third party that does our verifications for us. And we are very clear that we only get a pass fail um, and some notes. And the required tax information is uh, directly from the other vendor. So we, we don't maintain anything on our site. So we're very clear about that when you're going through the process with us, that it's um, this third party that we're, do- that we're working with, and we only use it for verification and nothing else. There will be no marketing, no anything else. We're not saving this for a rainy day. So it's, it's gone as quickly as possible. And we destroy the information when we don't on the third party as well, uh, as soon as we're done with it. So we're very, very um, sensitive to PII information. And after that, it, we follow some of the same rules as Chelsea, uh, which is we work with people when they have issues. Because if someone is a valid user and tries to sign up and doesn't pass verification, they immediately question the verification process because I know I'm me. What are you telling me? I'm not me. And that is damaging to our reputation. So we work very closely with our vendors, but also with the customers that are trying to do this process to make sure that all the good users that can get through do get through. However, wow, these fraudsters, they are audacious. And tenacious, you know, it's like I, we've heard everything. I, I forgot my social security number. I put a social security number in there. It's not mine, but I put a one in there. <laughs> so we, we've heard it all, but we do make every effort to get good users through. Sometimes a ridiculous effort, but we do have to have that level of trust that the verification does work for good users. Excellent. That's super interesting. A very sort of um, very different contrasting sort of approach. One is the community based that um, Chelsea was talking about on top of uh, the validation. And for you guys, StockX, it's um, more of a technical challenge, right? It seems like it's more like, hey, how do we make sure that from a technical perspective, we're not holding any data? And so there's the human element on obviously in a, in a childcare platform. And StockX being a marketplace, it's it's a little bit different. So that's very insightful. So from my perspective, um, when it comes to user verification, I, I think like it's important to do as much as possible with upfront, but also passively. I think the passive portion is important. What I mean by that is like, for example, we have a car rental marketplace uh, as a customer where they, they had tremendous amount of friction up front, the abandonment, uh, abandonment rate was uh, really high, but using Incognia's um, location verification technique solution, what we were able to do is like, if somebody's coming in and saying like, hey, here's my documentation, here's my driver's license, we're able to look for proximity from that particular declared location and plus where they were coming from. Because our resolution gets down to a few meters, we can figure that we can do that with very high fidelity. And that allowed our customer to actually drop their abandonment rate by 80%. And then the approval rate went up to 75%. So it's interesting. And for me, I mentioned this because there's the upfront and then there's the passive portion of uh, validation as well, right? And I wonder what other tools that you can use to actually passively, slowly over time, validate. Um, But the gamifying approach is, I think, super interesting. And um, we'll hopefully have some more questions about that later. But moving on to the third section, which is keeping banned users out. Now, once you identify, as you said, they're audacious, they're tenacious, they're always trying to come back. So what are the challenges that you're seeing in, in keeping customers out? How are you doing it? And how effective are you? Or is that a constant battle? So I'll start with uh, Travis on this, and then I'll go to Chelsea. The balance act here is that the more friction you put on the verification, the more tools you're going to, have to put in place to detect dupes. Reason why is if they find it's too, there's too much friction to do the verification upfront, they'll just create a new account or just that, that that will be the mindset on them. If you make it easier, quicker, better, less friction, 
to do the verification to begin with, you can get away with spending less time and energy on the duplicate accounts. Where that balance is, is that's a you know exercise for the reader in this case, where you want to put it. So that's what the balance act is. Now, I don't think that anyone has figured it out yet. I know I haven't. We are constantly fighting for users that approach the limits where we have to ask for more information by required or either by or desired or required for more information. And they find it easier to just create a new account than to give us the information. We are bombarded by the same account over, or the same person over and over and over and over again. One of the records that we held was uh, triple digits of uh, accounts at one small little duplex in the middle of a, we're not going to say the state, but a, a certain state had a triple digit number of accounts out of it. And on Google Maps, it was a two-story Tudor home. I don't think a couple hundred people live there. Yeah. Um, so we, we've gotten smarter with how we do things, um, how we do the detection. We find that sometimes uh, a heavy hand on it is um, counterintuitive. We found uh, you know, just sanity checks like, hey, maybe 150 people don't live at this one address, you know? Mm -hmm. You know, doing address verification, doing uh, key information duplication, the same payment method over and over again, the same addresses, the same names. You know, Darth Vader being my favorite. Um, so we're trying to strike a good balance, but we know that, or we found that making it easier to verify in the beginning has lessened our the need for spending too much time and energy on duplicate account detection. But because nefarious users will always do it, we still are going to have to have a, a baseline of duplicate account detection. Interesting. Actually, I just realized something that because you have talked about the progressive building of trust in certain scenarios, what you're saying is that if somebody comes in, initially it's easy. So they get to a stage X. And at that point, when the friction starts, they think like, hey, if I start all over again, I might be able to bypass this. So, okay. So, and what kind of users are they? These Are these people posting bad goods on the site or trying to post bad goods on the site? Uh, not entirely. We have some users that are passing good, good, the, the very authentic uh, material, mm -hmm. and they just don't want to deal with the, the additional tax scrutiny or mm -hmm. that um, they some of them are passing good, authentic material, but they are not wanting to give their information to the government. We've had some very tinfoil hat people that just don't want to give information. And then, of course, we have the people that are attempting to pass bad goods. And most of the time, we, we kill them off before they get to this level. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it's, it's interesting when you have a, a, a high fake rate, uh, where we, we've determined that a few of the products that you've sent in are, are fakes, and then you refuse to give us more information. It's like, good. Bye. Doodles. Yeah. <laughs> You yeah. know, so and those are the ones that are most likely to try to create uh, new accounts, new duplicates. Interesting. Got it. Got it. So so you have a subset where it is good users, just unwillingness to share data and 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 be onboarded. And um, so um, I, I can relate to that during the uh, heydays of crypto where you couldn't trust any of these uh, exchanges, what, what they were trying to do with your information. But okay, but then you have uh, these individuals who are trying to slowly pass on fake by returning and, and passing this on before the higher validation comes in. That's super interesting. Well, moving to Chelsea, how do you guys keep like banned users out? What type of users are trying to come back and uh, what's their goal? And what how does that impact your overall platform as well? Yeah. So, you know, I always like to say fraud fighting is a never ending fight. Um, they, they are smart, <laughs> those fraudsters. <laughs> and, you know, kind of to Travis's point, they, if they're having any trouble, they'll just come back and try to create a new account. 
and they start to learn where they're being blocked or like what's happening to cause them to be recognized. Um, and they start to develop more like intricate behaviors to try to subvert that. So, you know, I mean, it's going to be never ending and you're going to get those relentless people like Travis was talking about where it's like they've got hundreds of accounts and it's just like, well, okay, give up, please. Um, (laughs) But they won't. Um, So it's important to monitor, like have a multi-step process and monitor other data points of like matching information, um, commonalities and behaviors you know, user to user, like reporting, we make it really easy. Again, coming back to the community efforts, we make it really easy for our users to report somebody, you know, if they have a negative experience or if they think something weird is going on. And from there, our team looks at each individual report. We ask for additional information if we need to. Just because of the nature of the platform, we're always erring on the side of extreme caution because, you know, we're working with kids. But, you know, I know there's other opportunities for some mitigation to happen potentially on other platforms. But that's just always really important is allowing that easily accessible point for your users to come to you because you can put in every piece of technology blocker, but nothing is going to be as good as your users watching other users and kind of letting you know, like, hey, this person's doing something weird over here. Uh, And then you can kind of like zoom in the microscope a little bit more on that account and that Mm. person and look at more data points and look at more information. You know, also it's important. I think a lot of users like to know how you're protecting them, right? Like, well, what's keeping this person from coming back Mm. on the platform? Or I see they created a duplicate account. So just making sure you're not divulging all of your secret sauce, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, letting the users know it's important to let them know and communicate some of the ways you're protecting them and why you're doing things like identity verification or other types of monitoring. But then also not everything, like not all the details behind it, because then at that point you get those savvy fraudsters or nefarious users who are going to grab onto that and figure out how to get around that. So yeah, just constantly monitoring for those. I mean, we're probably always going to have to have a duplicate monitor like Travis Mm -hmm. mentioned, you know, it's just, this is how these people operate, but you're trying to figure out where there's these commonalities and how you can outsmart Mm -hmm. those nefarious users and bad actors. Got it. No, that's, Super interesting. Um, uh, you know, the community aspect of your uh, platform is um, coming through very clearly that and the accessibility of like, hey, clear, transparent communication. But at the same time, as you just said, like there are certain things you need to hold back. So it's about educating, but not give divulging all the methods that you can use to actually keep those uh, repeating offenders out. So that's super interesting. Now we have a question from Danny Balk. When you're working with someone who failed verification, at what point do you say, oh, this person is more likely a fraudster than someone who's just having trouble? How many resources do you put into helping someone verify before you make that call? So I'll start with you and then go back to Travis. Yeah, I mean, we're going to do as much as we can, but the team is very well trained in kind of understanding certain type of nefarious behaviors. And honestly, you know, we kind of have a process where if we can't pass them through verification, you know, if we try two, three times and it's not working, then we're starting, those red flags are starting to go up. And, you know, it very well may be a legitimate person, but at that point, it's just not a risk that we can take. So, you know, we've created other avenues that folks can use to join the platform. For example, um, completing a a criminal background check in place of an identity verification, because then at least, you know, they're screening some type of information. But yeah, I mean, it it just gets to the point where after a couple of times, you got to give up because it, this could be a bad actor. We don't know. We don't know all of the people personally that are on the platform. And for those people who are legitimate users, it is frustrating. And I understand that. But then thinking of it from our perspective and our user base specifically, I think people, even though they're frustrated, they kind of understand as long as we're explaining it to them, like, look, this isn't working. It's unfortunate, but you're not going to be able to join. 
So that's kind of where we go. <laughs> Interesting. That's um, again, the communication, it seems uh, to be very key for you guys. Travis, I think you touched on this topic a bit, the question that we're talking about, which is like, when do you say like enough is enough, but maybe uh, give a little bit of a, the tactical, how do you guys do uh, it? Given that we have users worldwide, we have to be somewhat lenient because uh, doing a, a verification check in the US is relatively easy compared to doing a verification check for someone in say Hong Kong. So uh, we have to be a little lenient, but we, we look at how they failed and where they failed. If they're doing something obviously silly, like running through a bunch of names and social security numbers or names and um, uh, national IDs, no, just no. <laughs> and, and in some cases, we'll let them continue trying. We're not actually doing the verification after X number of tries. It's like you can right. type in whatever you want at that point, it, you're going to fail. We're right. not paying for it anymore. But good luck, waste your time. And, you know, you you watch them all of a sudden using different devices. And it's great because we get to collect some of that information for later use. Or at least our, our third party vendor collects that for, uh, you know, hey, we know fraudsters at this at this uh, on this device. So it's not a cut and dry. It's a how they failed and how many times they, they tried it. And really, and in some cases, where in the world are they? If you're a U.S. citizen, or we think, sorry, if you're in the U.S. and you're trying to register as an EU and you put the wrong information in once, okay. But mm-hmm. when you start like changing, trying to change countries of your mm-hmm. nationality, yeah. oh, yeah. no, you get, a, you get a few tries, but no. So wow. there's no cut and dry, here's what it is. Uh, I really wish there was, but it's... Uh, in my opinion, it's not many. Interesting. I mean, do you mention what sounds like almost like a honeypot, right? Like after a point, you're like, this is us collecting information. You can spend your hours because you know what? For a fraudster, it takes effort too, right? You know, not that I'm sympathetic towards that, but it's a nine to five job for them. They're showing up and and to waste their time is actually just slowing things down, right? So I've seen the honeypot done specifically when we, um, you know, I had customers who suspected it's a bot send them to a specific website, which only a bot would try to complete over and over again. But it looks very similar to their real page. But just from the interactions, you can tell that this is no, there's no real person. And then you're just wasting resources. So, And you collect information as well and learn from that behavior and train your models as well. So I think that's actually a pretty brilliant uh, solution. Now, I'll ha- take one more question, then uh, we'll move on to the next section. But uh, this is a question from Prasad Ravi Krishnan. Addition to seller slash service provider verification, what would be the controls built to verify customer, especially in case of guest users? And how do businesses think about it? <laughs> Travis, since you're here, and you seem to relate to this most, so we'll start with you. Yeah. I hate guest users. I just, <laughs> I just really hate them. Um, but it's a, a fact of e-commerce. We're going to have guest users. Right now, I'm lucky I, I currently don't have guest users. You're, you're signed up or you're not. It's that uh, that simple. And if you're not signed up, you don't get to, to transact in the platform in any way, shape, or form. Uh, you can see everything, but you can't do anything. But, you know, guest checkout is coming, whether I like it or not. The way we usually uh, handle it is that the guest user is actually a full-blown user. We collect all the same information during the guest user checkout, in some cases more, and on the back end, it's just another user with no that just happens to have a uh, a messed up password. Mm. It's basically just a password reset away from being a, a full blown account. So that's how we normally deal with it. Is we put a shell in front of it that looks like a guest account, but it actually is a full on account. It just happens that after a certain period of time, uh, whether that be 30 or 90 days, the all guest all guest accounts, accounts that don't have the password set yet, are just eliminated. We just remove all the information so that the, the, the user can you know, come in and use the same email for another guest account later and rinse and repeat. But um, that's the way that we usually do it. It's interesting that users 
to sign up for an account will give us name, address, a name, email address, and a couple other bits of information. But the sign up for guest account, we can actually ask for more, and they don't blink an eye. Mm, they will give us more information to sign up for a guest account for a guest checkout than they would for a standard sign up process without fail. And it's absolutely fascinating to me, but that's the way it happens. And we're so as a result, we're able to do most of our checks that we need to do for guest guest accounts without too much of an issue. And when we do need more information from a user, whether that user is a guest user or a not so guest user, a, a, a full user, then we just ask them for it. And we always provide the, here's what this information is being used for. It's dumped after 30 days and it's only used for this. It will not be used for anything else. Mm-hmm. And in the past that we've done things like this, we've had actually relatively low fall off for collecting additional information to get a user through a process. Oh, okay. This is a uh, very insightful, um, especially around like sharing more and where you think the guest account is the intent is like, I don't want to share more. <laughs> That's an uh, interesting contrast. Uh, so Chelsea, um, do you want to take that question as well? Because for you, it's, it might be a different challenge. Yeah, so we don't have guest accounts. <laughs> um, you know, kind of similar to to Travis, you're either on the platform or you're not. And I don't imagine that we would allow that anytime in the future, just given our our user base. However, we are a public site and you know, sitter profiles can be viewed by non-members, parent job postings can be viewed by non-members. And so the way we kind of combat some of that is we you know make sure we're monitoring content and we look for are you posting your email or your phone number or your linkedin profile or you know any way to contact you <laughs> outside mm. of the site within your profile or within your job posting and then we are educating our users and we're saying hey look we're a public site people that have not gone through our checks can see this um so for that reason, we do not actually allow this stuff to be posted. Mm. So we just need you to update um, your information, but then it allows us to educate them as well. Sometimes we have people try to share accounts, which we also don't allow because everybody mm. needs to go through the same checks. Um, so again, you know, for us, it, it, it kind of comes down to a lot of moderation and content moderation and seeing, you know, any abnormal behaviors or name changes or location changes um, on an account. And then, um, or even within messaging, um, hi, I'm Sarah. Mm. And then the next day, hi, I'm Marie. Like, wait a minute, who who's here? <laughs> um, and so just kind of like making sure to address those as they appear to. So that was insightful. So um, I think we'll be eating a little bit into the Q&A time, but that's why I took the questions. That's okay, because I took some of the questions in flow. Hopefully that would, um, you know, that keeps the conversation more engaging. So uh, from just to finish up this uh, specific topic, um, for me, when I think about keeping users out, it's it's about figuring out what are the commonalities, right, of, of these uh, banned users when they're trying to come back on the platform. Like, for example, one of our customers who's a large um, food delivery platform, they had issues where you have bad drivers who are stealing money from the customers. So, and they're, they're every time you ban them, they're, they're trying to come back on, right? Either through a device where they're wiping, then reinstalling the app or coming back uh, with completely new device. Um, the, but what we try to do is use our uh, suspected location technology, which allows us to have incredible amount of precision, right? Like within a few meters. So we are actually able to say, see like, okay, is this particular location more prone to multiple devices coming back that's uh, re- related to fraud and abuse, right? And even if the, the device has been wiped. But also on the other flip side, you have issues where you can see the device integrity and look at like how the app has been compromised. And when we can track that, even if you are coming from a good location, you know, or a location that we don't have information on, you can always still block that. So it's about just kind of collecting, just being able to find those hotspots, right? And and repeat of those devices coming back. So um, I think that's, um, so ultimately the fidelity 
of a strong device ID a location, I, I think can be a, a really key uh, to uh, re-recognizing these uh, bad users. Now, the last topic, uh, the fourth one, is the future of user verification. Now, this is a little bit more of like what I would love to see in the market or love to have or what you think might be coming up. So, Chelsea, I'll start with you. What's your hope for 2024 and beyond? Yeah, um, I mean, I think we're going to see a lot of expansion of user verification on both sides of the marketplace. It's already starting in many, many companies for multitudes of reasons, right? You know, you want to protect other your user race, you want to protect yourselves, um, and you want to know who's using your platform for various reasons. <laughs> um, it's just really important. So, you know, I, I think we will see that and it's not just going to be the, the supply side anymore. It is important to protect everyone. So, I mean, I think it's going to, it could go in so many ways, especially with the rise of AI and people using deep fakes. Um, you know, we're going to need to get more sophisticated. What that looks like, I'm not sure. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but, you know, who's to say the technology that people are using to create these type of fake AI characters or people aren't going to be used to creating fake pieces of identity verification documents. Um, they're going to start to get a little harder for us to figure out. So, um, you know, I think we're just going to continue to have to work together as it evolves over time, especially like this year, I think it's going to be big for AI and with the discussions around it. So just like understanding photos of humans, people, and then also documentation is, is going to be something that we're just going to constantly have to iterate and talk on about. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think like it's one of those things, right? Like, um, one thing that uh, we've seen or, or what we try to do uh, at Incognia is give you the trust at the source, right? That because I, I use the example of a bouncer, right? Like if you go to a bouncer at a club, right? You, you provide your, you're under 21, you provide an ID and the IDs of somebody who's 21. The bouncer is not just looking at the ID and saying like, all right, the document makes, makes sense. It's legit. You go in. There is that moment where you have to look up and then look at the source and see who's handing that off, right? And so how do you identify that individual and had, build that trust with that source before it's handed off, right? Um, I think that's going to be key. And that's the problem that in, we find like solving is worth pursuing because uh, that can create a huge amount of benefit for our customers. But Travis, back to you like with the same question. I have a dream. I uh, a wish fantasy land that I, I choose to live in where I don't have this problem. Uh, let me explain uh, where I make it someone else's problem. I don't think it's going to be 2024. I think 2024, we're going to continue to struggle. I think, uh, as, as Chelsea said, AI and several other technologies ganging up on us, it's going to be a struggle for, for 2024. The cat and mouse game is, is unfortunately shifting in their favor for this year. So it's going to be fun. But I, I looking further ahead, I see, I'm going to say either a device manufacturer, whether that be Apple, Google, providing a distributed identity. In other words, this person has been verified via insert vendor name here, and they're on this device and it was unlocked by the person that's suspected for it, i.e. face ID, touch ID, insert other thing here. And when they join our site, they can give us that credential, that token that says this person unlocked this device and here is their verification. That essentially gets me out of the game. I no longer, I, I don't have to participate anymore. I make it someone else's, hint, hint, incognito. I make it someone else's problem. And that's my dream. Um, it wasn't always my dream. I've talked to uh, quite a few people over the last, uh, let's call it the last year, where I've gotten more and more comfortable with the idea of distributed identity. But this is kind of where I see it heading. And, you know, while I use Apple and Google as examples, it could just as simply be insert other place here. Um, for, mm. I don't really care who, I just care that it's not me doing it. 
but it is someone that I trust. So that's that's the future that I see. When if we get there, let me dream. Leave me yeah. alone. Let me dream. Well, you know what? That's uh, super interesting because I think the baby steps to that is um, very niche cons- consortiums. Uh, what I mean by that is, you know, on the flip side, like meaning like a consortium for bad users, not just all users necessarily. Um, and and the reason for that is like the the type of organizations that have the scope of data um, that would, you know, they have to have the motivation to do this. But in the meantime, you know, like even for us, like in Cognia, like what we try to do is think about like, okay, we have, you know, food delivery focus, uh, we have focus on marketplace. Can we get very common sort of definitions of what good users and bad users look like, put them in a consortium and be able to refer that and at least be a step towards that. But I think like that level of scope of data, I think it's going to be interesting. Now, obviously, we're approaching like the last two minutes. I'll take one more question. I'm sorry um, the Q&A got squeezed out. But from question from Joseph Costa, you've mentioned that fraudsters will adopt, adapt their strategies to try and break security measures. This can lead to implementing more security measures to keep them out. However, the tighter security, the more tedious the UX becomes for the average user. And if you make people jump through hoops, to use a platform, you risk uh, them walking away. What is the line between proper security and user convenience? Is there such a thing? Too much security. Yeah. Ask too much security. Yeah. So I'll go with Travis. I think we have only I, time for. Yeah. I, I, if anyone tells you they have the answer for you, they're lying to you. <laughs> Just very honestly, you determine where that line is. And that that's not a, a fixed point. Mine personally uh, at StockX has changed at least twice in the last three years, where we put the the line in the sand for uh, level of friction versus you know um, the amount of information that we need. We are finding that by re- by making the process easier, whether that be prefills or just making where we're collecting less information and doing more with it, has removed the need to do a lot of the dupe checking because if they can't make it past this flow that's actually very lightweight, then you know they're probably a bad user. You know, um, if you, the the more you reduce friction, the less you have to do on the. I'm going to call it the recovery side because anyone you're trying to recover is most likely a bad person. Um, and the good people through good flows are usually able, especially if you have a, a good partner that's able to do verifications cleanly, good users go through with an um, astonishingly high uh, rate. Bad users have an astonishingly bad rate. So making your flow by removing, you, you have to find where the sweet spot is for you where reducing friction in the initial flow gets you where you don't have to add friction or other tools later on. And if you get that right the first time, play the lottery, go to Vegas, play roulette, do something because you did something that I think is impossible. You got it right the first time. Hey, David here again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Trust and Safety Mavericks. Subscribe to our show to be notified about every new episode. While you're at it, follow our CEO, Andre Faraz, on LinkedIn, where he regularly posts insightful thought leadership.